Let us bow our heads for the prayer for illumination. Living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our first scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 104, verses 24 through 35, which can be found on page 544 of your pew Bible. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Yonder is the sea, great and wide. Creeping things innumerable are there, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan that you formed to sport in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament lesson is the story of the Sunday of Pentecost, or the day of Pentecost, as we find it in Acts 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. So listen now for the word of God to the church. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem, and at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the witness of the Old Testament and the Bible altogether, really, is in large part a celebration of the awesome power of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
These mighty deeds bear witness to power that is manifest in all kinds of ways. There is the power to create. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? There's the power of omniscience or knowledge. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. The story of the Exodus celebrates God's power to liberate, to set the captives free. As Moses said to the people, remember this day on which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, because the Lord brought you out from there by strength of hand. And in the New Testament, we see in new ways God's power to save. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. And we also see God's power to love. For we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here again in Acts on the day of Pentecost, we find a celebration of God's deeds of power. The followers of Jesus were all together in one place. Out of nowhere, they begin to hear a sound like the roar of a destructive wind, although nothing seemed to be actually blowing around. And then streams of fire, which are compared to divided tongues like a snake would have. They materialized in the house with a tongue resting on each head. Deeds of power, to be sure. But interestingly, those were not the deeds that got the most attention. That was reserved for what came next. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. On that day, God's most memorable deed of power came through the Word. It was classic Jesus, the one who came in the name of the Lord, but though he was in the form of God, never thought that that was something to be exploited but instead emptied himself, humbled himself, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The idea that Jesus came to bear witness to a different kind of power was obvious throughout his teachings and his ministry, but no time was it on more obvious display than on the day that he entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. People of Jerusalem knew a good power parade when they saw one. They had seen plenty of them across the years. The vast majority of those would have followed the typical form of what was known as the Roman triumph, the extravagant parade that a victorious conquering general would receive upon his return to Rome. Now, to qualify for one of these big-time parades, 
A general would have had to kill at least 5,000 enemy combatants in his campaign. If he met that standard, a massive procession would be planned for his return to Rome. And as the parade entered into the city, trumpeters would lead the way. Then came towers or floats representing the captured cities. And next were wagons full of the spoils of war taken from those cities. Gold, silver, gems, works of art. And they were followed by 70 pure white oxen marching stoically toward their sacrificial deaths. And following the bulls were captured enemy leaders whose fate later in the day would be the same as the bulls. Musicians and incense bearers would then signal the entry of the general himself. He would ride in on a flamboyant chariot, wearing a purple toga and a crown of gold. And following him would be the secretaries of the army and then the full array of soldiers, all of whom also wore a crown. This celebration of worldly power took the general up to the very summit of Rome where he would offer the sacrifices of the bulls and the enemy leaders as a thanksgiving offering to the gods. Now, as you well know, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem was nothing like the Roman triumph. There was no chariot, just a borrowed donkey. In the place of soldiers, aides, and dignitaries, there was a crowd of very unremarkable people, itinerant fishermen, tax collectors, women, and children, and they did not come bearing weapons, just leafy branches. Jesus had not killed 5,000, but he had fed 5,000 with just a few loaves and fishes. And Jesus would end up wearing a crown, but it would not be gold. It would be made of thorns. And he would be elevated up above the people, not on a throne, but on a splintered wooden cross. And this royal procession would eventually end in a sacrifice, but not of bulls or of enemy kings. The sacrifice would be of the priest and king himself. Those who had been hoping for the mighty Jesus, the worldly prince Jesus, the powerful and triumphant Jesus would be sorely disappointed. And it was confusing to the people of Israel who had certain expectations for the Messiah. And it continues to be confusing for those of us who look for a savior. We know of the mighty acts of God to create the world. We know of the mighty acts of God to know and understand the world and everything that happens in the world. We profess the power of God to set the captives free, to save those who cry out in need, and to offer love that overcomes everything in the world. And yet we wonder why a God like that cannot, or for some reason will not, prevent war or cure our loved one's cancer, or heal our broken relationship? Where are God's deeds of power in those times? There is a part of us that wants and needs the strong man leader, the power Messiah who can sweep in and crush opposition with one fell swoop, but for some reason that is not the power that we seem to see in Jesus. Dr. John Redhead, one of the best preachers ever to serve the church of my youth in Greensboro, once offered a helpful explanation of why this may be. 
Power, he said, is the ability to achieve purpose. He fleshed out the idea like this. If you have the ability to do what you want to do, what you intend to do, what it is your purpose to do, then you have power. If you do not have the ability to achieve what it is your purpose to achieve, even though you may have at your disposal a million horsepower of force, then you lack power. For example, a bull is a powerful animal for plowing a field. But for the purpose of preserving delicate antiques in a china shop, he is not powerful at all. The gentle hands of a frail man or woman would be power for that purpose. Power is the ability to achieve purpose. The entire Bible bears witness to the awesome power of our God to create, to know, to save, to liberate, to love. But in Jesus Christ, we see more completely the divine purposes of God. The goals and ends toward which God is moving with power. In Christ, the mighty power of God is channeled into gentle hands that can shape and preserve the world as God intends it to be. Back in 2008, I spent the summer as a chaplaincy intern at St. Mary's Hospital in Richmond, where my job was to try my best to offer spiritual care and support to patients and their families. And as a practical matter, what that meant is, on most days, I would just walk into a hospital room, having never met the patient or anyone in there, to see if I might somehow be of help. On this particular day, however, I had been asked to go to a very particular room, and it was the room of a 70-year-old Jewish immigrant from Russia. I quickly deduced what the nurse also told me. This man knew very little English. He had immigrated to the United States many years ago, but most of his life had been lived in a Jewish enclave in New York where the primary language was Russian. I was, to say the least, daunted by the hurdles that we would have to cross if we were going to communicate and understand one another. Fortunately, the hospital had already brought in one of those special interpreter's telephones. Uh, These blue phones have two receivers, one for the caregiver, one for the patient, and were both connected to a language translation service on the other end of the line. And it took a long time for that interpreter to pick up on the other end of the line. And even after he did, the delays were excruciatingly long. So in theory, I would say something into the phone. The translator would repeat it in Russian for the patient's benefit, and it would go like that. But it just wasn't working. So there we sat, a Jewish mill worker from Russia and a Christian seminary student from North Carolina, with a staggering distance between us. The situation was not at all unlike that of the early church on the morning of Pentecost. All kinds of people were waiting in Jerusalem, devout people representing every nation under heaven. Jesus had told the apostles to stay in the city and wait there until they had been clothed with power from on high. So they were waiting really without knowing exactly what they were waiting for. Galileans, Judeans, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Cappadocians, Asians, Phrygians, Pamphylians, 
Egyptians, Libyans, Romans, Cretans, Arabs, so many different people, so many different voices and languages. It was utter confusion, babble, outright chaos. They wanted to communicate, surely they did, but all they had was a confusion of words and a staggering distance between them. When it became obvious to both of us that this interpretation service was not working, that it was just deepening the distance between us, I hung up that blue phone. I figured we might as well try to work through this on our own some other way. And for the next hour or so, we did the best we could to communicate with one another. He did most of the talking in very broken and limited English, and most of my responses were based completely on trial and error. I would literally try to guess at what he was trying to say, and he would either affirm that my guess was on the right track with a smile and a nod, or he would kindly deny it with a shake of his head. The conversation, if you can even call it that, was slow and laborious, but we were somehow able to talk. We spoke about his homeland of Russia, about the beauty of the rivers, how he loved to fish in them. We spoke about the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets. We talked about the relatives he lost in the Holocaust and about the return of many of his people to the promised land. We talked about the power of God to fulfill promises. We talked about our common belief in the one God of Israel, the Holy One who wields the power to create, the power to liberate and to save and to love. And we talked about his wife, how he had spent so many years with her, how pretty she had been, how good her cooking was, how sad he had been when she died, how he so desperately wished that she could be there with him as he sat alone in this hospital, so far away from his home and the country of his birth. And I was able to tell him about my own life, my wife, my children, my hometown. We used very few words, but somehow we were able to understand each other and to communicate things of lasting value and deep importance. It's been 12 years since that day, but I still have vivid memories of sitting on the windowsill of that hospital room with the bright afternoon sun shining on my back and on the beaming face of that kind Russian Jewish man. I remember the smile on his face the tears rolling down his cheeks, and the joy that exuded from him, joy that no disease or surgery or medical threat could take away. I cannot explain to you how this conversation took place because he knew so very little English, and I knew absolutely no Russian whatsoever. The only thing I can say is that we really did understand each other and that it was one of those Pentecost moments that only the Holy Spirit can create. On that first Pentecost, it was not the rush of violent wind or even the tongues of fire that bewildered and amazed the people. It was the fact 
that somehow they could finally understand one another. The mighty power of God was not made manifest in a blazing inferno or an earthquake or in destructive winds. It came with gentler hands, hands that can preserve us and hold us as the fragile creatures that we are. And it came through the power of words, words that speak of God's love, words that everyone can understand, no matter who they are or where they are. May God give us eyes to see and ears to hear God's deeds of power like these. Amen.